This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. like to welcome Bill George here to uh, the Wharton School. Bill, thank you for joining us today. Nice to be back with you, Mike. Uh, great to have you here. And just a word about your background. You ran uh, one of the great uh, medical equipment makers of the world, Medtronics, for a decade. Mm-hmm. You've been on the faculty at the Harvard Business School for a decade. You serve on the board of uh, ExxonMobil, Goldman Sachs, the Mayo Clinic. So, Bill, you've worked your way around the, uh, the company space quite a bit. Uh, today, we're going to talk about your own leadership at Medtronic and what you've been doing in more recent years to help others develop their leadership. Let's start with a day at the office when you walked in, um, a day at Medtronic up in Minneapolis there. The uh, security person was so happy to see you. Uh, you got a cup of coffee, sat down in your office, and then I've heard some people say after that, it's all downhill. So what was a day <laughs> like, a week? For me, I, I'd have to say it was all uphill. Oh, good. Uh, I, it just was an amazing time. And the reason it was is because I got very quickly engaged in the life-saving mission of Medtronic and how we're engaging specifically with patients and what we're doing in our labs to try to save lives, whether it was something like cerebral palsy or with the drug pump or Parkinson's disease with this break the thing. Now, it took us 10 years to get there, Mike, but it was so exciting to see people that were just locked inside their brains with Parkinson's disease, and all of a sudden they had their lives transformed by these miracle treatments. Bill, I'll just add, you make the pacemaker. So Mm -hmm. there are some people out there walking down the street today who aren't doing that without that particular product. Right. And uh, But, you know, the implantable defibrillator, we were locked yep. out by patents. We had to go to the Supreme Court to get into the game. Uh, and then we had a huge competition with a company called Guidant, which was a Lilly spinoff. And uh, uh, it, it's been uh, – it, it was an amazing experience, but the life saved. My mentor uh, the last decade has been Warren Bennis. And Warren I was with last week, and he just said he has life saved six times by his Medtronic mm-hmm. defibrillator. Maybe more than that, he doesn't know about him. So. Let's talk about uh, Warren Bennis a bit, a uh, author, well-known uh, commentator on leadership. has written probably a dozen books on the topic. Uh, Bill, I've heard you earlier say that you were not a natural-born leader. Mm-hmm. You learn how to do that. Uh, Warren Bennis, probably one of your mentors, you read his work. To be able to lead at Medtronic for a decade, you took the company from $1 billion to $60 billion in market cap over those 10 years. What are some of the events, some of the people, some of the mentors, some of the books, some of the experiences that got you from the person you were at age 20 to becoming chief executive of Medtronic? Well, part of it was having a negative experience at Honeywell before I came, where I felt like I'd hit the wall, so to speak. I I wasn't being myself. I was heir apparent to become CEO of this giant company, but I just wasn't happy. I wasn't passionate about the business and uh, great people, but it was so bureaucratic, and it wasn't me. And I had to face that to go to a smaller company. Some, like somebody once, one of my mentors once said, somebody you have to take the elevator down a floor to go up, up further. And that's what I learned at Medtronic. It was like an open, free culture. You could breathe the air. I could be myself, the passion, the excitement. I spent, I saw 700 medical procedures where I would gown up and go see uh, a defibrillator implanted. So somebody's life saved uh, in brain surgery. You see 
uh, a stent put in their heart. And that's where I really learned about the business and got close to that and then tried to really integrate that back into the company and bring what I would call, instead of the internal bureaucracy we had, to bring much more of an external look so that everything, you'd sit around the lunchroom or you'd and dream up new ideas, you'd sit in a business meeting and say, is this product good enough to go to patients so 100% of all patients that get it are going to have their lives improved? And if it's not, we have to go back to the drawing board. Bill, did you have a mentor along the way? Well, I've had a lot of mentors. My mentors have shifted. I had some one at Winwall, and my predecessor was one of my mentors mm-hmm. when I was uh, CEO, and I've had a lot of mentors. My mentors are different today. Uh, Warren Bennis is one of them you mentioned earlier, but also Annette uh, Nori, our dean at Harvard Business School, has kind of show me the ropes at Harvard. So I've had some very wise people along the way that have helped me each stage. A man named Zig Nagorski, who died at 99 a few years ago, but fantastic mentor. And the wisdom, I look at them as wisdom people, people mm-hmm. that are like wise people you can consult. Let's take you into a year or two at Medtronic. I've often heard it said that in the, uh, in the corner office, your day is just one darn decision after another, and all the easy decisions somebody else took care of at a lower level. Think back on your 10 years there. What was among the toughest decisions you made? What went into it? How did you resolve it? And looking back with the benefit of hindsight, what might you have done differently? Well, we had, there were some big decisions. The toughest one I had was in 1998. We'd had a growth run started by my predecessor in 1985. And so we had a 13-year run, unblemished, of 18% growth in revenues and 20, 22% earnings. And yet that year, we're, the air went out of the bloom. We weren't growing. We had one business losing $50 million of vascular business. And we had a lot of people inside the company from the old old line core businesses, pacemakers, fibrillators, wanting to pull back and not get into so many new businesses. We had some ventures, a lot of ventures losing money. And so we had to make the call because we weren't growing. We had a 15% growth goal, and we, weren't, we were lucky we were growing 7% that year. And we were working hard to keep the earnings up, but you can only do that a while. And so we had two choices. We could pull back to what we were really good at, which we knew we could make a lot of money at, uh, but it'd probably be acquired by a larger company like a GE or Johnson Johnson, or we could uh, go for it and take some risks, take advantage of our high-priced earnings ratio, and expand the company. And we chose the latter course, even though a number of members of our executive committee were opposed to doing that. We decided to go out and uh, and expand the company. We did uh, five acquisitions, thirteen billion dollars in sales that transformed the company. And I remember having a problem after that. One of the actions didn't go well. The stock market beat us. First time we only, first time we'd missed quarterly earnings in, you know, 10 years. And they beat us up pretty bad. And I said, look, this is a great company. It'll come back. And we did. And two years later, the market cap had tripled from $20 billion to $60 billion because we did the right thing. But, you know, it could have gone the other way. The whole thing, you know, could have backfired on us. And we could have made some really bad deals and blown up the company. So... So you got to take a risk. That's what business is. Yeah. Got to live a little bit and on the edge. sometimes you have to go against the grain, Mike. Yeah. You have to go against what the prevailing wisdom is telling you and certainly go against what security analysts are telling you. So the U.S. Army has long had a phrase abbreviated with AAR, the after-action review. Always good to look back when things yeah. have gone well or not well and ask what you might have done differently. Anything you would have done differently on that one with the benefit, again, of looking back? Well, I, when something goes well, you wish you'd done it sooner. And so, uh, and we did pretty good job of integrating. So I don't have a lot of regrets about that call. 
It's interesting the first acquisition, Medtronic eventually spun off, but it, it was interesting because it was not a fantastic, but it opened the door to a lot of other things and put us in the game and gave us self-confidence. So I don't even regret doing that, the one you said, well, maybe you shouldn't have done. Uh, but I think we had to kind of bust loose. We were like in change, and we had to bust loose of those chains. So that one, I, I don't have a lot of second uh, thoughts about uh, those deals. Uh, Bill, when you became chief executive, you, like all first-time chief executives, are doing it for the first time. Thinking back about becoming chief executive, was there anything that was surprising, even shocking, that you didn't anticipate until you got into that corner office? Uh, well, let me just stop on that. What, what, was there anything that uh, really seemed um, counterintuitive, even shocking, as you did take up the mantle of leader of the firm? Well, I was fairly new to, to Medtronic at the time. I'd been uh, with the company only two years as president and chief operating officer. My predecessor stayed on as board chair, and I always said he was one of my wisdom advisors. Uh, yeah, it took a while to get our whole team around uh, on board, fully on board. A lot of them weren't quite sure. A couple of them had wanted the job. Uh, and to get them fully embraced in the company. And then what really shocked me was that here's this company with great values, and we ran into huge ethical problems outside the United States. And I made one appointment of the president of Europe that, that I made the appointment, and he turned out he was running a bribery fund. He'd come from a subsidiary company. He was running it there, but still, he had to be fired. I had to admit my mistake, say, you know, I made the mistake of appointing this guy. So it took a long time to get our team up to speed. But these ethical problems around the world, we had to go around the world and change out our manager in Italy because he gave a doctor a car and left it down Sicily, and we had to change out people in China and Argentina and Brazil. We had to shut down uh, every operation we had in Korea back in 1992 or three because we ran into some significant ethical problems there uh, and just start over. But I was shocked how a company with such good values could tolerate such actions mm -hmm. around the world. And I think tolerates the right world. And one of my closest colleagues was a Frenchman who was head of international. And he was a guy, he wasn't unethical, but he looked the other way. So he was passive. And he had to be replaced so that we could take, take the lid off and just get out all these operations and make a lot of changes. But that took longer than I thought. So Bill, once you got through that, let me reference maybe one of the miracles of the modern universe. You come to work in the morning, but at that time, another 5,000 people came to work. Right. They've all got to get their job done. All that's got to work mm -hmm. together, pull together. It has to be aligned with where you're going. If there was one thing you did to keep the 5,000 people working for you all over the world, pointed in the right direction, above that ethical line, productive, ultimately profit-producing, what was the maybe the most important secret of your own leadership? Talk about the mission every day, every minute, every hour, till you sound like a broken record. Travel all around the world, do mission and medallion ceremonies, and give people that Medtronic medallion that said, our job is to restore people to full life and health. And just really, you, you start to say, my gosh, people must be really bored hearing this. No, they want to hear it every time. Bring in role models, bring in examples. They want to know, that's why we're doing it. That's why quality on the production line is so critical. It's not to satisfy some quality inspector over there. It's because we know a human life hangs on the end of this heart valve. Or when you're in the operating room, you know that if you don't provide the right product to the doctor at the right time, someone's going to die. And I watched somebody die in Paris in an operation one hmm. in a venture we had, or he died later that night. Uh, and it just got to come in, pervade every 
aspect of what you're doing. We turned down some very large acquisitions, okay? Because in the end, we, there was not a coming together around the mission and the culture. Boston Scientific, you know, U.S. Surgical. Companies we spent a lot of time talking to, visiting with, talking to the CEO. But it was clear that there was not going to be a meeting of the minds around those points. And that was what counted. So everyone had to hear that every day. And you come on board. Mm-hmm. And that was the <laughs> thing I always tested people for. And I, at the end of my tenure, Mike, I had to fire a chief information officer because he didn't get it. He wanted to know where his reserve parking place was. So we don't have that. We don't have any company planes. Get over it. He didn't get the mission. And he'd only been there a week or two. And I said, boy, this isn't going to work, you know, until he went away. Yeah. Because it was clear I made a mistake. I'm not blaming him. I'm blaming myself. Bill, very good to hear you talk about your experience. And great, by the way, for people who are watching us right now to pick up one of your books. You've written four books since you were there. Two of them have the following titles. Authentic Leadership, that's the first book you did, became a bestseller a little bit later on. Uh, Your North Star. And a question I'm often asked as I reference, say, those concepts, as I often have, is if you don't feel that you're being the authentic you, and if you don't really have a North Star yet, uh, how can you develop that authenticity? How can you find your North Stars? So I know you've thought about that question a lot. Give us your guidance. When I first started writing, I was actually in Switzerland, and I'd just given up being CEO of Medtronic about a year before. And I realized we were losing sight of what we were called to do. And I thought that all the leadership literature was going the wrong way. It was talking about how we can paste on traits, characteristics, competency models. All the HR community was going this way. I just felt it was wrong. I felt leadership has to be come in from who you are. You have to be authentic and the genuine you. You have to follow your true north. You have to be the real person that you're called to be. Instead of trying to, that was the year of emulating Jack Welch. And how would you like to be a female executive emulating Jack Welch? It can't be done. You've got to be yourself. And we got to get away from this great man theory of leadership and get down to everyone has qualities of leadership, but they have to be developed. And that was the whole thesis of everything that I did came from. And that's why I always told people, just be yourself. You can't be something. If you're a tulip, be a tulip. If you're a rose, you got some prickers, it's okay. You can produce beautiful buds, but you got to be who you are. And then bloom yeah. where you're bloom from that position. So, Bill, you're optimistic in that uh, if we are being ourselves and we're not performing to the level that we know we have to to serve as a leader in the community, at a company, wherever, uh, we've got to take ourselves and we've got to build out what works, what's strong. And how should people go about doing that? First thing you have to do is accept yourself. You have to know yourself, have self-awareness. Yeah. Then you have to accept yourself, self-acceptance. And that requires compassion for your weaknesses, for that little boy that lost seven election or was rejected by the girls or the person whose mother died at a young age or whatever those things are that it felt he was unfairly dealt with, have crucibles, have difficult times. You've got to realize that's the core. That's when you get to the marrow of life. I'm kind of, that's what life's all about. And that's where it all starts. And so to help people go through, a lot of people say, I don't want to deal with it. Say, you can't be a leader until you do it. That's who you are. You have to accept who you are. You know, that there's nothing wrong with that. Until you can accept that, you came from poverty. You know, you came from a broken family or, you know, maybe it was, you know, whatever it was. Until you can ex- gain that level, you can't be a leader. Yep. And so helping people walk through that process is just amazing, the impact it and how it frees people up. It's exciting. So once we got that, 
then we need to know where we're going and that metaphor of right. a point of light Have that's your, always there. Your the, true north. Yeah, your true north. Your true north is what are you? What is your purpose in life? Yeah. What are you called to do? How are you going to make? You're just one of seven. I'm just one of seven billion people on the planet. How can I make a difference in the world? That's what I'm passionate about doing today with young leaders coming in. But how can each yeah. of us make a difference in the world through our work? Not that one is greater and one is lesser. How do you, and that's where I think having a sense of your true north, what you really believe, and following that, and we all get pulled off course, yeah. but you have to have a way, it's like getting pulled off your, your compass, but you have to have coming back to true north, to what you really, is you. So with that as the title of your book, and somebody says, I, I want to find my true north, I'm 22 years of age, I'm still trying to get that mm -hmm. direction figured out. How do I go about figuring out what my true north should be, wherever I might be? Very, very straightforward. First of all, let's review your whole life story and the various phases. What are the high points, low points, really in-depth? What is the greatest crucible of your life? What did you learn from that experience? Let's understand what do you believe? What are your beliefs? What are your deepest held values? What are the principles you think about humankind and about people? And what a, And put those things together, and now we're ready to talk about What's the purpose of your leadership? I learned the hard way. You can't start out talking about that. People don't know. Until you go through that, it doesn't come into, into focus. You don't really understand how can I use, what are the gifts I have? What are my greatest strengths? And what are the things I'm most motivated by? And that's what we call your sweet spot, where you're, mm -hmm. you're in your sweet spot because your you're, things, your intrinsic motivation, not just money, fame, and power, extrinsic, and it's your greatest strengths. How can I find a role for you? Thankfully, some of this work on Strength Finder came out where they talk about playing to your strengths. I had people trying to fix my weaknesses in previous jobs at Lytton and Honeywell for 20 years. They were always unsuccessful because you couldn't fix them. I still am patient. Yeah, I'm still too direct. I still lack tech. I still have all those weaknesses I've had all along. I hope I you know, moderate them a little bit and they aren't quite as strong, but they're still mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. It's part of who I am. So, Bill, Question to shift gears ever so uh, briefly here. You've been a chief executive that's had a board, and now you serve on the board of Goldman Sachs and ExxonMobil, among others. How does a chief executive go about getting the most from the amazing people in most boardrooms? Or if you're a non-executive director, as you are at Goldman and ExxonMobil, how do you work to ensure that the board can give the chief executive and his or her team what they need, which is strategic guidance and well beyond? Well, I think boards, the best boards are made up of diverse people who've had a lot of experience. And then as CEO, we had doctors on the board, we had business people. We just tried to have the dialogue discussion and listen to what they had to say. Sometimes they get it wrong or sometimes they don't say things quite right. That's fine. But what insights can we get from our board? Can they, how can they, and really use them and make sure that we use the quiet ones on the board, like the dean of Carmedic. Cornell Medical School, Tony Gatto was much quieter but had great wisdom. Other people were much more chatty. We had to draw them out into the dialogue. Make sure you're getting everyone engaged and you have private time to do it. You can't do it with a whole management team in the room. And have that private time to do that. And use your board. Really use them in the sense of gaining from their wisdom, knowledge, and experience. And that's the only reason I would serve on a board. I would say in that regard, the best board I was on is Novartis, where Dan Vassella really used the board and really appreciated our inputs. And he would give us unformed decisions to say, what do you think about this? And we'd give him inputs, and he'd come back a few months later and say, okay, now we're ready to take the next step. So I've encouraged the boards, I'm gonna do the same thing. Bill, a final question. 
Uh, PBS a couple years ago named you one of the 25 best CEOs of the last 25 years. You're actually here in Philadelphia today to receive an honor from the Franklin Institute for as yeah, CEO amazing. of the year with some amazing predecessors having received that award in prior years. If somebody turned to you and said, uh, I'm 20, I'm just getting going on a career, I want to do what you did. I want to make a difference. I want to lead. I want to, I want to be a servant leadership. I want to make a difference in the world. What advice would you have for a young person just coming into their career in light of what you've done? Don't do what I've done. <laughs> okay. You should do what you feel called to do. What turns you out? What are your passions? What gets you really excited? How do you want to make a difference in the world? When you get on your deathbed and you're 97 years old and your favorite granddaughter asks you, uh, what did you do to make a difference? Or what are you going to tell her? Think about that now when you're 22. How are you going to make your mark? There are 7 billion people. How are you going to not stand out, but how are you going to make a difference? What can you leave behind? What's the legacy? Who is the real you? I guarantee you it's not going to be how much money you make because there's always somebody that makes more money. What did you do to make a difference? And I found it really gets down to the lives you touch every day in your life and people you don't even know sometimes that you've impacted between by who you are, what you stand mm -hmm. for, by being true to what you believe. And I think if you can just do that, follow your own passions, you can, be a, you can fulfill every dream you have. It doesn't matter what your title is, it doesn't matter how much money you make, okay? It doesn't matter how famous you are, but it does matter did you make a difference? Did you use your greatest gifts your, that your creator gave you to make a difference in the world? To make us a better place, solve problems? Bill, author of Authentic Leadership of True North, a person who took a company, built the market value by a factor of 60 over 10 years, and now a distinguished member of the Harvard Business School faculty. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. It's an honor to be here. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.